Hey everyone, welcome to Super Women. Today's guest is Sarah Davis. While it seems like every brand is moving into resale, Sarah Davis invented luxury re-commerce and she started the first iteration over 20 years ago. She took the leap from eBay to make Fashion File her full-time job and thus the re-commerce category was born. Today, Fashion File remains the largest online platform for buying and selling ultra-luxury handbags and accessories in the country. Take a listen. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you're based in San Diego. That's where I was born and raised. Really? Uh, yes. Mission Hills is where I grew up. And we, I was I was whisked away uh, at the age of 10 to Florida, which I'll never forget. But that is, it always holds a special place in my heart. Yeah, it's... I mean, it is lovely here. And, you know, I always tell people, we we try to recruit. There's a lot of people from LA or New York City and they love where they are. And I'm like, why wouldn't you want to come to San Diego? It's just so nice. But it is, it's kind of, it's still kind of a little bit more sleepy than some of the big cities. So surf culture and keeps everything nice and chill. So are you, have you lived there your whole life? I was born in the LA area, actually, in South Pasadena area of Los Angeles, and, um, you know, kind of actually moved around quite a bit. My dad um, worked for Exxon and and moved us around um, the world. I lived overseas a couple times, and but I've been in California most of my life. That, you know, I feel like every time I land in California, it smells like home to me, even though I'll probably never move back. I, you know, there's something about the scent of California that just it resonates in my in my cells. So I love that yeah. you're still hanging there's, out around there. There's, like a, there's a ride um, at Disneyland. They've kind of changed it, but um, it was called Soren, um, California. And um, it would take you through this ride. And But in the ride, as you're like going over California and this like hang glide experience, you go over like orange fields and you go through eucalyptus and through the beach and all these, and there's all these, they actually pipe these smells into the room. And I think that California is very fragrant. And so when you say that, like it, it, that resonates with me. I can, there's lots of smells here that, that are home to me too. So, yeah. So let's, um, let's start in your early years. Uh, you moved around a lot. Um, I don't know if that informed, you know, your interest in what you do now, but I'd love for you to start kind of what, what started you on your path to your current business and what was sort of the spark that ignited it? Yeah, I think um, when I was young, we moved around a lot. And and really what was kind of interesting about my upbringing as well is I was the oldest of six kids. So we just didn't have a ton of money <laughs> to go around. And I always wanted nicer things than I could afford. And so I was always like, my kids shop the bins at Goodwill because it's cool and ironic. I shop the, bin, the bins at Goodwill, or they didn't even have bins back. There. I just shopped the thrift stores because I we had no money. You know what I mean? And that was yeah. like what, what we had. Um, and I think, honestly, my mom, when I was growing up, she called me not entrepreneurial because that wasn't a word used when I was growing up. She called me industrious because I was always finding a way to make a buck, you know, like I was just finding ways to to make a little money for myself. Um, again, because I nice I like nice things. My I wanted nice jeans. My parents weren't going to buy them for me, so I made the money myself. Um, sometimes that was like with actual jobs. Sometimes that was with you know buying a bunch of soda and bringing it to the parade and selling soda out of you know um, <laughs> coolers or whatever. I was just always finding ways to make money. 
I want to know how our moms did that or what was the secret sauce to making us industrious? Because I really resonate with what you say there. Like I was very industrious. Nothing was handed to me. I had to work for everything I got. And I am failing at, at this with my children. They're just like, yeah, I don't need it. I don't, I don't need, fine. I don't know if, if you don't give it to me, whatever. Do you think there's, there was a way that she raised you that taught or, or your, or your father, if he was in the picture, like that taught you to be that hardworking and industrious? It's a really good question because, um, I feel like maybe it's the fact that like, I try, like you said, I'm trying with my kids too. And also equally failing with most of them to instill that. But I think that it was just true. It was organic. Like, like meaning I'm not giving my kids everything because I want them to learn the lesson. I just, there was not an option. There wasn't a hope that my mom was going to eventually come out in the end and spring me some jeans. You know, it just wasn't happening. And so I was hungry for it. And it really literally just, you know, I, I think being, having less and having no option of more, unless you do something about it. I, that was for me, it was very, at least for me, it was something that was motivational. And, you know, I think that that's something that's hard when you actually have more available to you. Um, I literally just didn't get money for school clothes, you know? Um, so it was either me go to school without, you know, with last year's clothes, not fitting, trading things handed to the family or like make some money and get something. And I actually liked Ed and I for all these things that we couldn't afford. And so, you know, and again, like I, I feel bad even saying we had no money because my parents, we lived in a, in a, you know, middle-class neighborhood. It's just, that it was six kids. There wasn't like, not what I wanted. I wanted to have, you know, like I said, I wanted to, the new stuff, the cool stuff. And, and my, I would never get that. So. Yeah. 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 Very similar upbringings. That's crazy. So what led you prior to fashion file? What were you doing? Um, and, and I mean, you've been doing this for 20 years, so truly you are an innovator over 20 years, uh, yeah. within this space. How did you come up with the idea? Sorry. I asked you just way too many questions. What were you doing before fashion file? Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, when I was in high school, a couple things that I did that kind of brought me to where I am today is number one, I was on the, I was on the debate team. I was a debate nerd in high school, but I was all, I also got out early and took a fashion design class at, there was a, there was a program at our high school where you could take a fashion design class at university. So I kind of had that like interest in fashion, but I loved, you know, I had always thought I'm going to go to law school. This is what I want to, you know, this is what I want to do as a career. And so that I did that. I went to law school and I started selling on eBay when I was a law student. And this is, you know, many, many, you know, like 1999. So, so long ago, um, I was literally like would bring my stuff to the computer lab and was using a computer lab because back in those days, we didn't all have laptops. And like this wasn't something that was very common with anyone. I don't know that how common laptops were at all in 1999, or if they were even invented, I need to look into that. <laughs> none of my friends had them. None of us had digital cameras. We didn't have anything. This is the early days of, you know, more on the internet, um, early days. So, so yeah, I was a law student. And what I realized, I never, again, because I never thought of myself as entrepreneurial, I wasn't using those business terms for what I was. I was more like scrappy making a buck. Like it was a dirty way. It was me like literally buying I bought hair clippers when I was in college, like, you know, at 
at, there's a store called Shopco that was like a kind of mini Walmart. I bought clippers and started cutting hair in the boys' dorms for like $5 a head. I never went to hair school. I just, I was like, meet the boys, make some money, you know, get all the boys gossip. Like it was like a perfect job. It was awesome. But again, this is not, this is not me like a startup. This is me just trying to make a dollar to, cause I'm paying my way. You know what I mean? So um, anyway, so I was in law school. I'd kind of, figured that was going to be my career. I'd always looked at the business school and kind of was like, ooh, boring, a bunch of like men in suits, mostly white guys in suits, you know, just did not, as I walked by the business school at my college, it just looked boring and not my jam at all. You know, I didn't think of myself in that way. But when I was in law school and I'm selling this stuff on eBay, I really was drawn towards like the the creative side of like building a business and creating a brand and like, the packaging and and the experience you're creating for these, you know, for, as you're selling these products. And for me, I was also very excited because again, like I felt like I'm giving access to people to something that I wanted, which was really nice things for less than, you know, if you couldn't afford to go into one of the, go, to go into a boutique or a, you know, luxury department store and purchase these things, you could buy them on eBay for significantly less. And so you know, it was something that I wanted and I knew that there's a customer out there who wanted it too. And so, you know, at that point I was like, whoa, this is really cool, but this isn't business. Like I thought of business, you know, this is something, and it wasn't for years really that I thought of myself as I still always thought of it as kind of like a, as a side hustle, you know, scrappy way to make some money, not as like an actual, like, oh, I'm starting this like actual professional, you know, more organized business in the, you know, in the run of the mill sense of business school type operations. So. So what was the transition like? You know, I mean, I think you probably started around the same time as some other, you know, brands that have not doing what you do, but started on eBay, established a huge amount of traction and then moved offline. What was that transition like? And how did, how did you know at that point, okay, this is the real deal. It's time to move off this platform and and start my own site. Yeah, I actually had, um, I, again, I didn't have a lot of people in my life at this time I was living, went to law school in Maryland and I didn't have a lot of, you know, people in my life, real mentors who were entrepreneurial or who had been there, done that or whatever. And so I'm just, I'm selling my stuff on eBay while I was in law school and then um, graduated from law school and was like, whoa, I like paid off my loans very quickly with this with this little eBay business that I had, my user ID on eBay was fashion file. And, um, you know, and I'm like, but this is like super fun. I'm like loving it. Like I'm, I'm caring about, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying again, like all those aspects of branding and building and all that. And so, um, convinced my husband, I'm like, this is going really well. Let's just keep this going for a while. Cause my husband's like, okay, now you graduated, you passed the bar. Like, let's get like a real job, you know? Um, but I was loving this and didn't want to, and I didn't want to give it up. And so I was like, you know what, I need to, I don't know even know what I've got here. And I, and so I literally just said to myself, who is the like most successful person that I know? And there was a, a man that we knew who had, who owned a cancer clinic. And so I go to him and I'm like, listen, I've got this business here. I think there's something here. It's like, it's really growing like organically and, you know, I'm loving it. Do you have any advice for me? And he's like, you know what, you need to talk to my accountant. He's really into helps people who have startups and like, you know, entrepreneurial people, he can help you with your money and give you some good advice. So I was like, okay, great. I go to this guy 
And, you know, he looks at my like Excel spreadsheet, my finances, which are not even in QuickBooks at the time. It's that. And he's like, you've got something. This is great. Like, what is your, where's your business plan? And I'm like, my, yeah, I, I what? Keep, keep doing what I'm doing. I'm having a blast. He's like, listen, you know, he said, listen, read this book. And he gave me this book called The E-Myth, which is the entrepreneurial myth. And yep. he's like, and then come back and talk to me, you know, in a couple months and we'll talk about this book and, and come to me with some kind of plan or whatever. And what was really revolutionary in the book is that I just saw myself in it so much. And it talks about how people will start businesses because they love something. They love like if you're a cyclist and you love riding bikes, you open a bike business and you know nothing about profit and loss statements or running businesses or payroll or taxes, you know, bikes, you know, and that people spend so much time in the business of figuring out this bike business that they can't spend enough time on the business, growing the business and developing it. And so it really talks about just before you even think you're ready, hire people to do the things that you actually don't have to do, that anybody can do. And then work on systems to hire more people so you can grow. And I was like so inspired. I like put, started reading that book and just all through the night was like, whoa, this is, yes, this is talking to me. I'm so busy in the business, taking photos, packing, shipping. I can't even think about growing the business because I'm so busy. Anyway, and so at that point, I was like, you know, let's do this. Like I, I saw that at the time, in that, you know, the in the early 2000s, if you wanted to buy a, a, you know, a Chanel handbag that wasn't brand new, you had your local consignment shop where they've got a very limited supply. And I'm still a huge fan of consignment shops. Like I, I'm, I love resale in all of its forms. But, um, but if you go into any consignment shop, if you look in my favorite categories, the luxury accessories, they're just as always, you know, it's the, it's the best corner of the consignment shop, but there's never that much there. And then in those early nineties, there were, um, I mean, so early two thousands, there was eBay. It was those two options. And on eBay, you got to think about eBay in that time. It was more like, um, Facebook marketplace today, or like Craigslist where it's a ton of counterfeits and weird scammy stuff happening that you don't know what's going to go on. Like in the early days when I'm selling on eBay, literally there's no PayPal. So you buy something from me and I'm waiting for your physical check to arrive in the mail. That's the, the, these early days, you know? And so I was like, there is an opportunity here because nobody can trust anything to think. If you thought, think about like, you know, if you were just starting a business and you're selling on Craigslist, cause that's all there was out there, you could see how it would be very easy to picture creating a universe that is where people can sell and they can buy and they can trust that they're going to get the item at the very least. And that also they're going to trust that it's going to be authentic. And oh, by the way, if you get it and you don't really love it because you've never seen this style before in real life before that you can return it and all these things, you can see how that would be very easy for me to dream up, you know, in those early times, because there was nothing there. And it's like makes, it made all the sense in the world. So you know, that's kind of what inspired that. Um, and so, you know, just, and that's when we started, developed our website and literally gave it the name of our eBay user ID. I brought my brother-in-law in to partner with me in those early days. He was starting UCLA business school. Cause I did have a little bit of like imposter syndrome that I wasn't, um, that I didn't understand the, the real business metrics that were going to help, you know, grow the business in a way that, that it needed to grow. 
and brought him on board. He has a totally different skill set than I do. He's very like, you know, he's numbers and, and more, you know, into the spreadsheets and, you know, into all of the, just understood all that world so much more than, you know, better than I did. And obviously doing this for 20 something years, I've lost, I've shed, I've shed the imposter syndrome. I'm, I've convinced myself I'm okay. But um, he's been a great partner to me because he really had strengths that I really, really did have weaknesses in, especially at that time. And so we kind of balance each other out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So did people think you were crazy back then starting a site, e-commerce of luxury, even today, right? It's it's hard to find new bags online that are luxury. So then you're entering a space where online is new. Um, you know, it, yeah. it's, it, what, what did you go through? What were some of the challenges you encountered in convincing people to do this or buy from you or, in, you know, people to trust you? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of different sides to that. Number one, I mean, all my friends and family were like, um, yeah, you just spent a lot of time and money. You've been dreaming your whole life about being a lawyer. And what are you doing? They literally were like, oh my gosh, Sarah, maybe she didn't pass the bar. Like what is happening? She's got this little, this little eBay business she's doing. Like, what are you thinking? You know? And like maybe feeling bad for me, like, oh, it's uh, too bad. Like she's not making it in the, you know, her dreams. She's not, and, um, and so, and kind of would just get little dismissive comments or whatever. And, you know, and so it's just, it was just one of those things where you just, you kind of have to put blinders on. Um, you know, my mom told me when I was growing up, actually, she's like, sadly, you should be really careful with who you share your dreams with, because um, there's people out there who just aren't going to be happy for you as you're successful or, you know, as you set goals for yourself, it's, a, it's sad, a sad statement. You're going to be able to recognize those people in your life who are going to be your cheerleaders, who are always happy for you, who are, when you tell, when you, you know, give a hint of some dream that you have or some vision for yourself that are going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to cheer you on and they're going to, they're going to like buoy you up. And then there's other people that are like, what? Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, like you kind of get, you've got your own doubts. You got plenty of your own doubts. You don't need other people, you know what I'm saying? pulling you down in that way. And so I had to be very careful of, cause I saw this vision that my husband always kind of jokes that they're delusions of grandeur, you know, like I remember a distinct moment when I was talking to my brother-in-law and we were like outside a Taco Bell or something. And the business was very, very eBay business style, like early on. And I was like, Tony, I think I seriously think this can be a $10 million company. And everybody's like, kind of like, oh my gosh, cute, Sarah. You know, I mean, it's, and I mean, we're just so much, you know, we're so far beyond that now that it just makes it interesting that everybody kind of laughed at that. And and I was like, no, I'm serious, you know? And, and I wouldn't, I don't know what, I don't know. Can you say, what about our parents? I don't know what it was that my mom and dad 
instilled at me in me that that I could when people laugh at that, I could get, be like, oh, yeah, you watch, you watch, you know, that I would still be able to have confidence that it was going to happen and move forward. But um, so there was that aspect personally. And then, you know, it was just like you said, it's a new a new way to sell. I'm grateful. I always I kind of joke and like give a lot of credit to eBay as as my like incubator. I didn't go to like a startups. A lot of times we'll have an incubator or they'll I didn't have an MBA. But there were a lot of like discussion boards and you know videos that were kind of helpful tips and tricks. And so I started doing things like writing um eBay provided this platform called eBay guides. And I started writing a series of guides that that basically said how to buy authentic fill in the blank Louis Vuitton multicolor on eBay. And it was basically saying, hey, listen, you know, we you can trust that what you buy from me, that from Fashion Files Authentic, and we're going to give you a money back guarantee and show you all the appropriate photos and tell you how you can get it outside authenticated. But if you're buying from anyone else, look for this stuff because it's a mess out here. And eBay has actually cleaned its itself um, up quite a bit in the years. And there's actually, I, I love eBay. I, I still shop from eBay. But um and so started to try to do things to kind of stand out in those days before social media. There was no Instagram, no Facebook, none of those things. And so tried to develop a platform where I could grow. And, you know, in 2010, Entrepreneur Magazine called Fashion File one of the smartest, most innovative, hands down, brilliant companies on the radar. And then I joke that we like went under the radar for the next like 10 years <laughs> because we were silently growing, but so many people. Um, competitors entered the market, you know, in 2014, 15, people just started climbing into the market and then, and going about it with the VC route that raising a ton of capital, which meant just hundreds of millions of dollars in awareness building. And we never did that. We didn't raise any money and were bootstrapped till 2019. So we didn't have that, you know, we had awareness in our category, meaning people who buy what we sell and sell what we buy new and know who we are. But outside of that, we just didn't have very much general awareness. Um, you know, and so it's, it's, it's kept things interesting. That's for sure. Well, that was going to be my next question is here you are, you know, one of outside of eBay, one of the only destinations for luxury resale. And then, like you said, in comes all a ton of sites that, you know, are marketing and advertising, at that point, did you encounter any challenges of like, you know, you didn't have to, you never had the competition and now what did you do and how did you sort of, you know, continue to make sure that the business was protected? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it was very stressful as we saw every single brand come in. And again, like when you're bootstrapped, it's like you make a dollar and you put the dollar back into the business. And then you, you're you trying to make a dollar fifty out of that. And then you put that back in the business. You're just growing it, you know, st- slowly but surely. And um, we'd been steadily growing, you know, 50% a year over year. We'd always been profitable. And all of these huge, you know, really great brands, actually. You know, um, you know, Real Real entered, I want to say 2014, somewhere in there. And and I'm a huge fan of the real real. Like all of you know, my daughter's Doc Martens come from the real real. Like I use them to sell my stuff, and I buy stuff from them all the time. Um, not in our category, <laughs> but like other clothes and furniture and things like that. I love the real real and and many of our competitors. But it did make us 
like super nervous. And um, I, you know, really stressed out when huge news stories would come out or just all of the awareness would just went straight into these brands. And when you're trying to, when you're growing, when you're bootstrapped, kind of our awareness strategy was be good to the people who buy from us and sell to us. And they're going to tell their friends and organically you can grow at a steady clip. And that's kind of how we done it. We didn't have a marketing department at all. No marketing department until 2019. Every Instagram post was me, you know, in my office or around the building, taking pictures and sharing things. And, um, you know, and so I, literally like sleepless nights, like what does this mean? You know, um, and I read an article actually that Malcolm Gladwell wrote like in the New Yorker or something like that. And he talked about the difference between choking and panicking. And he uses the example of um, planes crashing and, and the black box, what you find when these plane crash, these planes crash. And one of the, this in particular part of this article, he talked about JFK Jr. when his plane went down and it's just really riveting this article. But what he says is that small plane pilots use the horizon to kind of balance their wings. And they're always looking around at the horizon to balance their wings you know, their plane against the horizon. And he said, what happens in a storm or when there's like any kind of, you know, there's cloud or fog or whatever, they lose sight of the horizon and they're trying to find it. And they can get in this death spiral as they basically balance out to something that's not the horizon or whatever. And he said, if pilots would just look at their instruments, they would not panic. They look at the instruments, they go, okay, we're doing okay. Balance out. And if you just don't look at the window at all, just look at the instruments, you're going to be okay. You know what I mean? And, um, and this was really powerful to me because I would look at the horizon and I'd be like, what is happening here? We're going to go under, like how in the world are we going to make it when there's every article, like there's Bagwar and Steel's in sex. I remember Bagwar and Steel was in the Sex and the City movie. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're like relatively new to the game. And that's going to be the end. Everybody's going to go. They had started selling bags at the time. Like that's going to be the end. Or you'd look at all these things in the horizon that just seem like, you know, that we need just, that would make me panic. And then I'd said, I would look at the instruments. I go, hey, wait a second. We're still profitable. We're actually still growing. All of this kind of enthusiasm in the market is actually that rising tide is raising our little boat, you know, as well as people are learning about resale. Um, they're, they're finding that fashion file when they do a Google search, if they're looking for a, you know, um, Chanel 19 in, you know, whatever color and you do a Google search, we come up, you know? And so when, when I looked at the instruments, it just made me less nervous, you know, and just kind of saying, okay, what do we do? Let's not try to do what everybody else is doing. What does Fashion File do best? Let's lean into that. Like, what does our customer want? What is good for this? You know, you know, we learned one of the secrets was that what really matters is treating the seller as best as we can because she's the one who's bringing us all the good product. And once you got all the good product, that's you know, that's the, that's the honey to the bees. The bees are the the buyers. And if you got all the honey, they're coming, you know? Um, and so I think just watching the instruments has been really good for me um, personally to not get stressed. Sometimes you just look at the competitive landscape and you're like, how in the world are we going to survive in this? And you're like, okay, settle down. Like, let's look at it. How are we doing? And, you know, anyway, yeah. 
You know, over the last couple of weeks, I've had conversations with a lot of founders and they've all grown and achieved huge success. And in the not traditional way, when I say that in fashion, we have to have a big Instagram, we have to pay influencers, like, like, or like you said, with, you know, the real, real splashy, lots of advertisements, you know, VC money. And, and I think it's just refreshing to hear yet another business. Like you said, you didn't have a marketing department until 2019. It was you or, or there was a woman I interviewed uh, a couple months ago, Kate Kordsmeyer. That was just like my, you know, her Instagram following is 30,000, but she's doing six figures a year off her blog. And you'd never know it because everything we've been sold for success has been around some of these social platforms that sometimes don't work for everybody. So it, it's just nice to hear that. So you've, you're clearly the number one in the space. You have an incredible business. How has your leadership style changed, you know, going from you reselling on eBay to having, you know, a globally recognized company? Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. And, you know, I'm sure you can resonate just with your experience. You understand the difference that um, it's, bizarre how different it is from running like a business where it's me or then me and like two college girls who I'm like just working with every day who are you know packing shipping or whatever and then as you grow and now we've got like you know and then getting a, a business partner who that was actually extremely helpful but changed the dynamic and and is it is it it's not better or worse it's just different and for me it was a weight lifted that was better you know um, but then now like getting, you know, um, since that to that, our first investor actually in 2019 was Neiman Marcus, which was, you know, just honestly the biggest, like I would have never, you know, like Cinderella story, like so amazing that this luxury brand would be interested in a company like ours, like at the time, you know, just such a, a thrill for us, um, you know, and for me personally. Um, but that meant bringing in people on board who are very, very, you know, who are professional, have been there, done that. Like, you know, our CFO just came on board and he was at Ralph Lauren and Vitamin Shop and all these, you know, really great companies. Our COO came from Best Buy and from Kohl's and, you know, been there, done that with just huge multi-billion dollar brands. Our CTO came from Nordstrom.com and Hotlook. And what's so cool is that, is that, okay, I did every Instagram post till 2019, but I am actually not even, I'm not great at it. I'm fine. But like, there's people out there who are so good at it, who are just like, and now we have a digital team and we've got people in marketing. And so, you know, it's like, what's great is to do the things you can do. Kind of, this is, this is actually just like still principles from the ebook, which is, by the way, my Instagram was good enough. You know, like if I can, if you can get by, like, I, I guess, I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't bad at it, but like, get by as long as you can. And then when you can find someone who's better at it and you can afford that person who's better at it than you and, and, you know, can get those people on board, our Instagram, our social media is so much better. Like we created videos before and they're like, they're adorable because they're so homegrown. And, you know, I look at them like, Oh, and now our videos that this our you know, our digital team is putting out, they're just like so exciting because it, they tell the story. Like there's so many stories with what we sell, you know, there's so much heritage and so much, 
um, you know, that's real about kind of these luxury brands that have been around for literally since the 1800s. You know, there's so much there that I think that in the world today where everything's fake, you can't really tell what you're grasping at and pixels and NFTs and crypto and, you know, you don't even know. And then you've got something that's like, okay, this is a luxury item that's like a brand that's been around since the 1800s that's going up in value. And people are like, yeah, you know, I actually do want to invest in that. And it's kind of fun. And so having the right people on board to tell that story better than I can. And again, having players on board and partners who are like, it's such a relief, I guess. And so it's kind of nice because when you talk about being a leader, part of that is letting other people really like lead in an area where, gosh, you've got the expertise in there. Like you tell me, you know what I mean? Like, and so sometimes that leadership I think is, is getting the right people on board and then letting them go, um, letting them, you know, kind of tell us, um, you know, in areas where they have expertise and it, and then they at the same time look at us, you know, and say, Hey, you know, we don't know, we don't know resale. We don't understand like the luxury seller, like her mindset and how that is different from the luxury buyer. And so tell us about that. And so allows us to kind of really lean into what we know, um, which is the customer that we're trying to serve as best we can. And, and then allowing other people to come in and kind of lead where that's, you know, also so important. So I don't know, just that balance. Yeah, for sure. So what's next on the horizon that you can share? No, I'm what I'm super excited about since it's like is that we've been we're a California company. I, you know, I was born in California and we've, you know, we love we're in we're in the North County San Diego area. Um, like you said, but we're we are opening an authentication center in New York City in Chelsea. And I just think it's so cool because it's a full operational center, meaning we're packing, we're shipping, we're authenticating, we're like servicing watches, you know, luxury watches and doing all of the work of the business right in the city. And when you talk to any investor or anybody who they're like, oh no, go out in the suburbs somewhere. You're like, you don't want to be in the city, but I kind of feel like we're bringing kind of like how the old school, like fashion garment district, you know, luxury, like fashion manufacturing used to be in the city. We're kind of bringing ops back into the city, but we're bringing it in, in a way that we're allowing the customer to come in. If you come to, to Carlsbad to North County, San Diego, you can walk into our operational center. You can get a peek into kind of, you know, what we do here. Um, you can buy anything that's in our warehouse and you can um, sell to us and get paid on the spot. And so I love that we're offering, we're offering those services in New York City. So you can walk in and you can, you can actually take a peek into our inventory cage, high security, climate control, but you're going to be able to look into it. You're going to be able to have a window into our authentication center and into our, like, um, shipping department, which is like, basically we call it the last step of our marketing department. Cause we create this beautiful experience for you as you open our boxes or, you know, even photography. And so I'm excited for that to kind of welcome the people, you know, kind of, we've been in New York, we had a, um, we've had a, a selling studio there, um, on Madison since 2018, but I'm excited to bring this full experience to, you know, to the East coast and especially to the people of New York city. Cause we have such a great, um, customer base there. That's exciting. I can't wait to come to the New York City one and, and take a peek personally. I love you gave such great advice, especially about, you know, keeping your eyes on the instruments. It's so key. Is there any, I always like to end my podcast with asking two questions. Is there any last piece of advice you'd like to give either that someone relayed to you or that you learned the hard way? 
to help a fellow budding founder or current founder out? Number one, just get started if you're thinking of something. I have a lot of people who have ideas and they're talking to me about these ideas. And I'm just like, just start. Like, just just do it. Like nowadays with like with the internet, with Shopify, you know, um, being able to pop up a website in fairly short order with like so many different platforms out there that you're able to sell products, whatever. I'm like, just get started. You'll have some kind of data to go on. You'll see things that are working and not working, even in very small you know, scale, it's very helpful. Um, And then once you get started, just keep moving forward. Like people look at the story today and they'll walk in a new employee or whatever. I'm like, gosh, this building is gorgeous. And this business is so organized or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's been such a grind for so long. I'm like, if anyone is working at something, has an idea and just really just works at it every day, improving and just, you know, trying to learn about what you can do to make it better every day, 10 years later, 15 or 20 years, it's going to be amazing. You know, it's going to be, it's going to look nothing like it did back in the day. So I guess that's the, that's my best advice is just get started if you've got the idea, because even those small scale iterations are so helpful. And then, you know, just keep at it. Just keep going. I love it. And then my last question for you is, what would we be surprised to know about you? It could be a habit, a quirk, something that people be like, what? She's- oh, man. <laughs> I just like to bring the human, you know, back to everybody. Yeah. Okay. This is very, this is so bizarre that you're going to be like, what in the world? But when I was in college, again, like I just, I paid for my way in college. So it's like, I had all the jobs or whatever, but I actually worked for the U.S. Forest Service as a wildlands forest firefighter. So it's a a seasonal (laughs) job. It's a seasonal job. It's not nearly as sexy as it sounds because what it really means is you're just hiking around during the fire season and you're you're basically building a fire line around a fire. So you you take this kind of axe looking device and you and you make a line, you know, into dirt where there used to be like brush or grass around a fire so that fire can't, there's no fuel for the fire to cross the fire line. But anyway, that's like one of the crazy jobs I had because it was like, oh, they pay you more than anyone else. There's hazard pay if there happens to be a flame on. I like rarely ever even saw actual flames. So again, it's not like I was, they, they had these these folks called the flame and goes that they would literally like, they're, a lot of them were like prisoners actually from the prison. They drop in who would like love getting out and getting like really good, getting gnarly, getting closer to the faint flame. But I, that was not my job, but yeah. So I did that. I love it. No one knows that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I never could have guessed that. Now uh, everyone. <laughs> so where can everyone uh, name all the sites and all the places you want people to go immediately purchase some incredible luxury goods. I was perusing the site on this interview and I was like, it was dangerous. So. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Fashionball.com, of course. Yeah. And obviously we're on Instagram. We've got some, again, amazing content, like really cool stuff happening on YouTube and, you know, all over social. Um, but yeah, I, I want to tell you too, I don't know. I've, I thought it was interesting. My my sister-in-law is an influencer, um, Amber Fillerup. She's barefoot blonde, but she gave me my first Rebecca Wait, Minkoff she's your bat. sister? My sister-in-law. Yeah. Oh, your sister-in-law. Oh my God. That's crazy. Oh. Okay. She gave me my first Rebecca Minkoff bag when I thought I was like seriously cool because it was so long ago. I can't even remember what year it was, many, many moons ago. And I felt like I knew the cool up and coming. And anyway, so I carried, we called it, I called it my Disneyland bag because it's like a crossbody bag that's no hands that I could just like, but yeah, 
Oh my gosh. What a small world. <laughs> I love her yeah. and she's been such a great supporter. So that's nice to hear you're related. Well, I'm doing San Diego soon, so I might be hitting you up. Hey, you need the behind the scenes tour of this Willy Wonka of luxury. I'm telling you, hit me up. I will give you the tour of your life, blow your mind. So awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Bye. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithms. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again, and you will hear from me next week.